Hello, everybody, and welcome yet to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. I am one of the hosts. I am Dr. Cole, and we host this Nailed It Ortho podcast, and we aim to go over high-yield orthopedic topics. So if this is your first time listening, welcome to the Nailed It Ortho podcast. If you are a return listener, we love you, and we appreciate you so much. Welcome back, and we have a good episode in store for you all today a a little different episode this is an episode talking about superior capsular reconstruction which is an operative technique used to treat irreparable rotator cuff tears irreparable massive rotator cuff tears full disclosure for many years until maybe a couple months ago i always said irreparable (laughs) rotator cuff tears so uh, if you are in the same boat as me know that you are not alone. If you all are laughing, that is perfectly fine, Um, but it is irreparable rotator cuff tears. And with us, we have Dr. Justin Mitchell, and um, he does a great job. I mean, if you guys are YouTube and you like visual visual cues and like seeing things, of course, again, check out the YouTube channel at Nail It Ortho for the visuals that go along with this. But, you know, Dr. Mitchell, he did a great job. We went over, you know, a lot of stuff. We went over the indications for this procedure, the correct patient to select to undergo this procedure because patient selection is very uh, key and important when considering this operation for patients with massive irreparable rotator cuff tears. Uh, A little bit more about Dr. Mitchell. He did his residency at the University of Colorado Hospital, and he did his fellowship in sports at the Stedman Clinic. So without further ado, we hope you all enjoy this episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Dr. Mitchell, welcome to the Nailed It Ortho podcast. We are so happy to have you, and I'm looking forward to this talk, so welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. What you guys are doing is, I think, really awesome, and I think it opens up a lot of people's eyes to a lot of things they may not even see in some some situations in residency and other areas, so this is great. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. We appreciate that, and um, kind of how we start off this podcast, the general flow of it was we like to ask a couple questions, get to know you, and then we'll transition into the case for the day. Um, so the first question I have is, if you could go back and give yourself some advice for when you start a residency, it could be your first year or when you're chief, what are some words of advice that you give yourself? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think one of the things that I learned from a chief resident that I worked with was if it's hard, it's probably the right thing to do. And I think that rang true for most of residency was if it was a hard thing, it seemed like it was more work. It seemed like it was going to take me extra time that was probably the right thing to do. Um, you know, I think everybody always talks about case volume and trying to get as much out of residency as you can there. And I'm sure other people have said this, but I think clinic is probably more valuable than the OR. You learn how to evaluate patients. You learn about follow-ups. You learn what to look for postoperatively. I think I, I probably spent so much time focusing on the OR that you kind of neglect clinic a little bit. And I think that turns out to be extremely important. So I think a piece of advice I'd give myself is, you know, always, always take the hard way if you can, because it's probably the right way and try to focus on clinic and, and learn from those patients and learn from your mentors in that setting as much as you can as well. Yeah, I completely agree, especially with the clinic part, because, you know, you learn how to operate and then you're out on your own. It's like, well, how do I know what patients I need to operate on? (laughs) Yeah. It's like, how do you work them up? You know? (laughs) Yeah. I I used to have, uh, I used to have mentors that say you can teach anybody to operate. It's hard to teach anybody how to get to the operating room. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good solid piece of advice. And then, um, and another part of doing the hard route, it's kind of like goes into discipline and making sure like doing the right thing, even when other people aren't looking, you know, it's just, um, yeah, I completely agree. We had a mantra that was, you know, do it yourself, check it twice, trust no one. And uh, I think that still rings true even now that I've been into practice for a few years, you know, do it yourself, check it twice. And, you know, don't trust, trust, but verify if you trust, will. Trust, but ver- yeah, that's a, that's a common thing used in our program too. Yeah. Um, next question I have is a, um, is a question outside of ortho. Do you have any specific interests that you like to do that's outside of orthopedics? 
Yeah, I, I I love golfing. That's like a big thing now. This is a perfect year for for being a golf nut. So that was good. Um, I, I did my residency and my fellowship out in Colorado. So by nature of that, I'm I'm pretty into skiing and even snowboarding, and um, still do some coverage for the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Team. So I, I really find that enjoyable, and I really think those are you know, elite athletes that sometimes get overlooked. So I, I really love that part of it. Um, you know, and other than that, I, I love traveling. I love going to live music, which neither of which have been, <laughs> yeah, no, right. been able to be accomplished much this year. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, you know, I think that's really important too. And that's one thing that you kind of, you kind of get lost in a little bit in residency is kind of making sure that you have those aspects of your life. So it's nice to rediscover those. Yeah, no, that's, um, that's pretty cool. I've never been skiing yet. One day I'll go to Colorado and try it. I'm, I'm just, I always hear skiers and I hear it, but like um, pylon fractures and I'm, I'm just scared. Oh, yeah. ACL tears, <laughs> but um, I'll, I'll definitely try it out one day. Yeah, it's um, a good sport. And the final question I have for you is, um, if you could put a billboard sign anywhere in the world, uh, where would it be and then what would it say? Well, right now I think it would be wear a mask <laughs> and then yeah. maybe right next to that, I'd put up, get vaccinated. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think that that would be great. But um, before the pandemic started, maybe it would be end trampolines. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah, I, you know, they've just put up an, a trampoline park in our town and that uh, is an endless stream of business while we're on call. So, um, but you know, obviously right now, I think, I think awareness and seriousness about the pandemic could probably be top of my list. No, I like it. That's great. And um, let's go ahead and transition into the talk for the day. Uh, we're going to be talking uh, kind of a sportsy topic. We'll talk a little bit about rotator cuffs, and then we'll talk about this kind of specific treatment. We're talking about um, superior capsule reconstructions for irreparable rotator cuff tears. But we kind of just have a, 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 you know, just a case that we just made up here. So say, for example, somebody comes to your clinic as a 54-year-old guy. He's referred by his primary care physician due to longstanding right shoulder pain. He's tried physical therapy, he's tried injections, he's, none of this helped. And the, uh, the primary care physician got an MRI which shows a large tear, so they, so they transfer them or so they refer them to your clinic. What are some of the things that you want to kind of be on the lookout for when you're doing a physical exam and when you're getting a history from this patient? Yeah, good case. I think this perfectly is going to demonstrate kind of the the things that we deal with in these you know very difficult problems. Um, you know, so so here's a, a young guy who's you know probably pretty healthy, probably active, shows up to your clinic with a pretty dysfunctional shoulder. Um, MRI has already been done and has a large rotator cuff tear. So I think the first thing we want to know is you know is this an acute tear? Is this a chronic tear? And then we also want to know you know, what's his function like? And, you know, we've got a good physical exam there, which shows he's got, he's pretty dysfunctional. Um, and, and then, you know, obviously we're going to end up getting some x-rays and some further imaging to see what is the status of his splenohumeral joint, what's the position of his shoulder in space. But ideally, you know, we can talk about the standard treatments for rotator cuff, you know, injuries really don't change even despite a large tear. Although I think we tend to trend towards uh, more aggressive treatments, you know, surgical typically as the patients get younger and more active. And in a 54 year old guy, um, this is, this is somebody who would probably we'd tend towards more aggressive options earlier as opposed to non-surgical, uh, options here. Yeah. And, um, I think those are all important points, especially, you know, finding out the chronicity of the tear, um, you know, some of the treatments they've had before in the past. Um, what are, so, you know, you get the history, what are some things on physical exams that, that point out to you that you want to make sure you check in any, any patient that comes in with this type of a history. Yeah. I mean, you've got, you've got some of them listed here on the physical exam. You know, he's got atrophy of the supraspinatus fossa. He's got pain with range of motion. He's got a positive Job test, a positive empty can. Uh, you know, these are things that lead you to believe that there's likely some rotator cuff pathology. I think the thing that we probably don't spend as much time talking about, you know, as we're learning about rotator cuff injuries is that, you know, the shoulder is pretty complex, you know, unlike the knee, uh, you know, or, you know, some 
more hinge type joints, you know, even the ankle to a certain extent and the hip to a certain extent that really don't move in as many planes. The shoulder moves in several different directions, has many different functions. And so I think we kind of lose a little bit of focus on some of those other functions. And I think one of the things we fail to really recognize too is what's happening to the deltoid. Is the deltoid still functional? Is our trapezius still functional? Because this is going to be key as far as what happens to this patient if in fact we find out that this rotator cuff tear is not repairable. But what we're looking for mostly is what's his active and passive range of motion. Um, you know, what's what's his strength? It's going to be pretty weak given the fact that he's got an MRI showing a large tear. And are there associated pathologies? Does he have biceps pain? You know, that's a common additional pathology with rotator cuff um, tears. Does he have AC joint pain? Does he have, you know, crepitus? When we move his shoulder, do we feel crepitus either within the glenohumeral joint or against the acromion? All of these things can give you some kind of an idea of, okay, where is this patient's shoulder right now and what are the options for it going forward, even before we get MRIs and x-rays. So I think those are, those are all things we want to look for. And, and you mentioned, you know, the deltoid function, trapezius function. How do you test those? Are you just, you know, just active reduction and you're just seeing if they fire their deltoid or, or their trapezius or, you know, yeah, obviously it's, you know, it's hard to get people to isolate those things. So yeah, you're really trying to see if they fire when you're just doing active motion. Um, you know, it's, it's not easy to get people to isolate those muscles, especially when their shoulders are already dysfunctional. So yeah, I think you're trying to get them to do as much active motion as they can and, and seeing if you can get those muscles to fire and, and feeling the muscles tense. So that's, that's something I always at least try to check, you know, have them do things that would hopefully fire those muscles and then, and then check them. Okay. And when you're doing your strength testing for your um, rotator cuff, are you, are you doing it like you're, are you doing the job and you're testing their strength uh, with that like physical exam maneuver, you know, versus like external rotation for infraspinatus? Is that how you're checking the strength? Do you, do you yeah. switch it by yeah, you know, muscle? Yeah, we're, we're doing all of that. You know, I think, you know, supraspinatus is traditionally tested, you know, up with the arm out in the scapular plane, you know, with Job style maneuvers. And I think that that works very well to try to isolate the supraspinatus and infraspinatus, you know, typically with the arm at the side, you know, external rotation, subscapularis, internal rotation, you know, that gives you a pretty good idea. And, you know, the, the typical sort of horn blowers sign, you know, seeing things um, unable to get your arm up into space. Those are things that you want to, be checking for, although I will tell you that you see enough patients in clinic, you will see patients who have fairly significant weakness, you know, in their subscapularis and internal rotation or infraspinatus and external rotation. But if you've got somebody with a large rotator cuff tear, most of these patients don't really cooperate like a textbook with the exam. You know, they, they hurt everywhere. They're weak everywhere. And so it's really hard to get people to resist because even an internal rotation when the subscapularis is a, is a really strong rotator cuff muscle that typically, you know, works in a lot of these patients with superior rotator cuff tears, they still don't like doing it. And so they don't give you as much, as much uh, strength as you would expect that they would, even when it's intact. Okay. So say we get this patient, he comes in, you know, pain, pain, pain in shoulders, tried things, has atrophy of his, you know, you can see atrophy in his supraspinatus fossa, pain, positive, you know, Joe's empty can. Uh, what are you looking for on imaging? I know we spoke about imaging. They have their MRI disc, but I know we're getting x-rays. There's anything that you look for on x-ray specifically and then MRI. Yeah, I think, you know, just like with every x-ray that, that you obtain, you know, the first thing you're looking at is just basic anatomy, right? You're looking for the position of the joint in space. You're looking for joint congruity. You're looking for the health of the joint itself. And so specifically as, as it relates to the shoulder, number one, we want to find out, you know, is there arthritic change or something like that, that is, you know, leading to increased shoulder dysfunction or pain. Um, you've got an, a very nice x-ray up here on, on the PowerPoint, which demonstrates maybe a small inferior osteophyte, tiny on the, on the humeral head, but certainly nothing, nothing dramatic. Um, overall, the health of this joint looks pretty good. And the other thing that I like to look for is the position of the, of the humeral head in space. I always tell people the shoulder kind of resembles a golf ball on a golf tee, you know, always going back to golf analogies, but <laughs> We want, we want that ball sitting on the golf tee. And if the ball is shifted off the golf tee a little bit, well, it's really hard for that ball to stay stable, especially if you've got a massive rotator cuff tear, which, which your MRI in this PowerPoint very nicely demonstrates. 
you can imagine the first thing that happens in a massive rotator cuff tear with the ball shifted superior is that when that deltoid fires, it just kind of pulls that shoulder up and it, and it grinds against the, the inferior aspect of the acromion. And so that's a dysfunctional shoulder fairly quickly. Um, now we look at this and, and basically we're, we're looking to see, okay, the position of the ball in space, the, the health of the joint and making sure that we're not missing other things. Is there AC joint arthritis? Is there, you know, glenoid erosion? Is there deformity of the glenoid? Is there deformity of the humeral head? You know, these are all things that we, we want to look at basic stuff, you know, that, that you would look for in any trauma film or any other x-ray that you're looking at. Okay. And in, in your go-to films, you just get a, you know, gray sheet, scap Y, um, you know, do you, do you have your go-to standard set of shoulder x-rays that you? Yeah. Yeah. I like to get, I like to get a true AP and I like to get, you know, an axillary. I do like to get a scapular Y. Um, and, and part of the reason that I like to get, you know, a full series of, of the shoulder is because it gives you an idea of, of the anatomy and it tells you where the shoulder is in space. So you really do get a good idea of, is the ball centered on the socket? Is the ball shifted anterior, posteriorly? Sometimes these people can have chronic glenoid deformities and you can miss arthritis if you're not getting axillary views or even uh, scapular Y views. So I do like to get a full, a full series to kind of get a better idea of where the shoulder is in space. Um, and I, I think that, that that can be helpful at times. So I, I'm, I'm with getting a full, a full shoulder series on these. Even if you've got an MRI, I still like to get it. Right. It's like you kind of want to be a detective and, and figure out exactly what you can get and use all your films. Exactly. Uh, do you ever get an MR arthrogram in these cases or just an MRI? Yeah, I, th I think if you've got a pretty good idea that it's a rotator cuff tear, I'm not typically someone who's in favor of getting an arthrogram okay. um, with these cases. You know, I, I know there can be some debate on that, especially if we're talking about revision settings. You know, like if it's somebody who's had a previous rotator cuff tear and you really want to see, you know, is this a re-tear? I know there are definitely folks out there who do get arthrograms for the shoulder, even just to evaluate for rotator cuff tears, but with three Tesla magnets and the increased sort of um, clearness of the, of the MRI, I really haven't found that we need to do arthrograms in most of these patients. And, and okay. I think that probably saves them a little bit of pain. Okay. So, so we have this patient, you know, comes in large tear on MRI, symptomatic, not getting any better. Uh, we, I know we talk a lot about irreparable rotator cuff tears, but can you explain like what is an irreparable rotator cuff tear? Are there some signs or like what, what makes rotator cuff tear uh, irreparable? And I, and just for the record, I used to say irreparable. That's what I thought it was, but <laughs> that's all right. recently, I figured out it was irreparable. So, um. <laughs> Hey, you know, you can say whatever you want. We know what you mean. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, I think the biggest thing here is that, you know, as it comes to surgery, when I, when I look at a rotator cuff tear, there are some that are clearly at risk preoperatively. And I think, you, you know, one of those things we talk about is the tangent sign, which is um, sort of fatty infiltration or fatty loss or degeneration of the supraspinatus, where if you look at um, a, a sagittal MRI view and you can actually follow the, the musculature all the way back to the scapula, if you look at the supraspinatus fossa, the muscle belly should be sitting, you know, at least above a tangent line drawn across the top of the supraspinatus fossa. And if it's below that, typically the, the muscle is degenerated enough or is infiltrated enough that it's not a well-functioning muscle. And this may indicate, you know, chronic tearing such that this may not be a healthy, a healthy muscle or a healthy tendon that would be excellent for repair. So preoperatively, you can get some clues to see, okay, is this a healthy piece of tissue that can be repaired or is it not? And obviously you can also look at just what's the position of the rotator cuff in space. Some of these are retracted so medial that they're actually retracted past the glenoid. That's a really hard distance to jump to get that tendon all the way back over to the greater tuberosity. So you can yeah. get some clues preoperatively that this may not be a repairable tear. Um, the other thing that I like to say about these though, is that you never really know until you're in surgery because there have been some that I, you know, I made jokes. I'm like, well, I pulled that out of the lung, you know, that you can have some that are so medial that you're like, no way. And then you yank on it and it comes right over. No problem. Um, so you never truly know until you're in surgery. So typically if we're talking about these, you know, which we're going to get to, uh, you have to almost consent patients for, for both different types of surgeries because you want to try to repair it if you can, but if you can't, there's other options. And I think that is actually a perfect segue into um, the next question is what are the, 
what are the treatment options? I know there are plenty of treatment options. We're going to kind of focus in on one for the day. But what are some of the other options that are out there for these irreparable rotator cuff tears? Right. And I, I think, you know, this is a perfect time to talk about patient selection and, you know, who would be a candidate for a rotator cuff repair. Um, I think the, the patient that you presented, I, I think there would be little argument unless he had very significant arthritis. Um, I think there would be little argument that this patient would meet criteria for a rotator cuff repair. But there are a lot of people who don't. We've done studies on this exact topic of who does well with rotator cuff repairs and who doesn't. Well, and it turns out things that you would think of are typically things that put you at risk for not doing well. Increased arthritis, increased age, rotator cuff arthropathy, where you've had chronic rotator cuff tearing and you're starting to get arthritis. Um, I think those patients are probably more suited for arthroplasty options. And, and reverse arthroplasty is an, a really excellent procedure, and it, it keeps getting better as time goes on, as we understand it more, and our indications get better. Um, it's an excellent procedure for the right patient. But assuming that arthroplasty is not the answer, um, then I think when we look at irreparable rotator cuff tears, there's sort of a pathway that we can look at. Back as, as, as near as 2012, we really didn't have great options other than reverse arthroplasty for irreparable tears. And our options were really debride the tissue, which actually had surprisingly good outcomes. If you actually look back at the literature, isolated debridement did better than you would think. Um, but there was also partial rotator cuff repairs. We could go in there and repair what we could, try to put some things back as well as we can. Um, things like patch augmented rotator cuff repair, where you can go in there and basically attach either a dermal or sometimes a xenographic, you know, like an animal-based patch to the rotator cuff to try to bridge the gap, um, do tendon transfers, uh, especially in younger patients. And then more recently, uh, in 2012, um, Tiro Mahata in Japan sort of had a problem that he was seeing difficulty with patients who had these irreparable tears, and some of them met criteria for reverse arthroplasty, but actually... Uh, up until recently, reverse arthroplasty wasn't available in Japan. And so he, he sort of developed this idea of the superior capsule reconstruction, which is an anatomic reconstruction of the superior capsule of the shoulder. So it, it's not a well-discussed structure. I think now it's becoming more well-discussed and, and it's, it's, board, it's board eligible now. I think it's been out enough. So you might see some questions on these things on in-trainings or board exams. Um, but it, it is a separate and distinct structure from the rotator cuff and reconstruction of this seems to stabilize the shoulder to such an extent that we can restore the fulcrum of the shoulder so you can get your shoulder up into space even without a functioning rotator cuff. So, you know, as before we only had debridements or partial repairs or more extensive surgeries like tendon transfers or even reverse arthroplasty. Now we've got sort of this in-between option of a superior capsule reconstruction, which, which could be you know, kind of a game changer for some of these younger active patients who aren't great candidates for reverse arthroplasty. Yeah. And, um, and I think that was a, a great explanation he's talking about the different options for these irreparable rotator cuff um, tears. And I know for at least for this talk, we're going to kind of focus in and talk a little bit more about the uh, superior capsule reconstruction. So, you know, given all these different options, how do you know, like, you know, this is a, an indication, you know, that this patient should probably be a good candidate for a, um, a uh, superior capsule reconstruction. Are there indications for this? Or they, I know you talk about patient selection a lot. What, what patients are we uh, yeah. selecting to undergo this procedure? Yeah, so let, let's, let's jump to the OR. Let's assume that we you know, have indicated a patient for either a rotator cuff repair or a superior capsule reconstruction, you know, which is something that we you know, have to consent them for preoperatively. But in surgery, there are definitely things that you see sometimes that you don't expect. And there are other times where things look better. Like I talked about being able to repair a tear that you thought you may not be able to repair, or you get in there and it's not repairable. And you think that you thought you might be able to. So these are conversations you have to have preoperatively and say, hey, listen, if we find these things, these are our pathways. So I think there's been enough studies done now that we've got a pretty decent idea of sort of quote the right patient end quote. <laughs> um, we're, yeah. we're still refining that, but we've got a decent idea of, of who, who is a good patient. So it's a patient with a symptomatic, large and irreparable rotator cuff tear 
you know, on arthroscopy. You know, we can't repair it. We can't get it back. And even, even a partial repair doesn't seem like it's, it's likely possible. The, the best indications seem to be patients with either isolated supraspinatus or supraspinatus and partial infraspinatus tears uh, that are irreparable. And what we figured out over time is that they need to have an intact or repairable subscap. So we can't, we can't just do this and hope that the subscap does okay. We have to have a good functioning subscapularis uh, tendon because otherwise it's easy for that shoulder to kind of escape out the front or even do some anterior superior escape and that's not a well-functioning shoulder. So we need to have that intact. And then I alluded to this earlier, but we also need to make sure that the deltoid and the trapezius are working and we really want to try to minimize the arthritis here. We want to try to minimize the amount of arthritis patients have, and there's different classification systems, but ideally, we have a patient with really no or limited osteophyte formation, and we have a patient with a reasonably well-centered ball on the socket. If we have those two things um, and every other criteria is met, I think that's a good patient for, for a, a superior capsule reconstruction. I, I should probably note that this this should be for the physio physiologically young patient, I think. You know, I think you can get some debate on that. But I think if we're talking about patients who are older and less active, I think those patients are the ones that still are great candidates for arthroplasty. Yeah, those would be the ones that maybe, you know, get a reverse soldier, um, I guess, depending on, you know, their, their function of their, you know, rotator cuff and deltoid. But those would be the patients that may benefit from um, arthroplasty. Yeah. Uh, so speaking about the um, superior capsule, what can you kind of just talk a little bit about the anatomy of the superior capsule? What makes it important and like its function? Because I know you, you know it hasn't been something that has been um, uh, spoken about a lot per se, even though a lot of people know it's there. Yeah, you know, I think this is something when when I first heard about this, I was kind of like, come on, you know, you know, you you hear this and you're like, no way, this this is not like something that really works or is a real true functional piece of the shoulder. Yeah. But you know, you can see in anatomy dissections that there is a true separate capsule that is separate from the rotator cuff. You can remove the rotator cuff, and there is a superior capsule which is sort of a static stabilizer of the glenohumeral joint. Um, they have done some cadaveric demonstrations where they show that the, the shoulder stays relatively stable within the glenohumeral joint with the superior capsule intact. And as they release the superior capsule, you can see both superior and inferior translation. So there is definitely a stabilizing function to this, to this structure. It is, it is a real structure. It's an anatomically identifiable <laughs> structure, <laughs> um, which I wasn't, I wasn't so sure when I first started learning about this, but it's there and, and it does have a function and, you know, it attaches around the shoulder joint, just like you would expect to the ed, to the uh, area of the greater tuberosity and then medial on the glenoid and, and it's real. Yeah. How many, how many times do you do this a year? Just curious. Is this uh, something you do often or something you do just a couple times a year or like it has to be the right patient? Like how often do you do this? Yeah. Great question. You know, this, this is one of those things where, um, they seem to come in waves just like anything else. You know, I, I seem to do a couple in a row when I do them and then you go a couple months without seeing one that would be indicated for, for this. Um, I would say it's on the order probably of about 10 a year. I would say it's, okay. it's about one a month, but maybe not quite that frequent. Um, and I think that's probably even a lot for most people. Although there are some people who are really aggressive with utilizing this tool um, and they do many more than that a year, but I think maybe it's one a month, probably a little less. Okay. And um, I think unless there's anything else you want to talk about preoperatively, I think um, we can kind of dive into the technique, I guess, behind how you do this. You know, do you, you do your yeah. diagnostic autoscopy first or, you know, what do we do with the different structures? I know there's a lot of different structures. So what, what, what are some of the technical pearls that we should uh, get away or take away with um, superior capsule reconstructions or the things we should pay attention to? Yeah, you know, I think this being sort of more targeted at a resident audience, I think that the key thing in any rotator cuff repair situation or any rotator cuff surgery situation is, you know, yeah, we have to make the diagnosis of what's going on. I think one of the things that we sort of miss in our training, at least I kind of did, is you know, the subscapularis is important. You have to look up the front and make sure that's intact. So when you're doing your diagnostic arthroscopy, that's one of the first things I look at is what's the health of the subscapularis? Because that kind of sets the table for what happens next. If the subscapularis is repairable, which, you know, if you see a tear, almost all of them are, um, but 
if that's repairable or, or needs attention, that's the first thing that needs to be done to set the table for everything else. Well, not the first thing, but it's one of the things that needs to be done to set, set the table for everything else. But I, I do think from an intraarticular standpoint, you know, we need to stabilize the labrum. Many of these patients will have some degenerated labral tissue. Many of them will have degenerated slap lesions around the area of the biceps. Many of them will have an unstable biceps. And a lot of these people actually don't have a biceps left at all um, because their shoulder has been so badly injured, the biceps is already ruptured. But to stabilize the irritated synovitic tissue, to remove any damaged uh, or torn tissue and, and deal with those things, I think is, is kind of step one. And to either tenotomize, you know, just release or to reattach to a tenodesis of the biceps, I think is a dealer's choice. I think it's up to the patient. It's up to the surgeon. Um, you know, looking at outcomes, everybody will, will cite the different studies on tenodesis versus tenotomy and demonstrate there's really no difference functionally. It's cosmetic. It seems to be the difference and maybe some differences in, in cramping and, and long-term pain. But for the most part, it's a dealer's choice. Um, and I, I think it's also patient selection. I think many of these people are probably young and active enough that a lot of them want a tenodesis. But again, I think that's, that's dealer's choice. And then after that, you know, we have to address any scar tissue around the rotator cuff. I think one of the things that we kind of miss as in residency and in our early training and maybe even in our early careers is we have to get rid of all that scar tissue around the rotator cuff. I think you'll find a lot more repairable rotator cuff tears if we do a good scar tissue release and a good release of all of the, the scarred in rotator cuff tissue. Um, and that's how we kind of make our diagnosis of whether or not the, the, um, the tissue is repairable. Um, you know, and then from there, assuming the rotator cuff is not repairable, then we talk about, you know, dealing with other things, you know, like the superior capsule reconstruction. Yeah. So just to rewind, what is, what's the conversation that you have with the patient when you tell, when, you know, when you talk to them about tenotomy versus tenodesis of the biceps? Yeah, I, I think, you know, it, when I was, when I was in training, almost everybody got a tenotomy. And I, I think I, I, I didn't see as much tenodesis, but I did see some. And I think it's it's all based on how you frame the conversation, and I, I kind of learned that as I as I moved on. But um, I think the one thing that I tell patients is the outcomes are the same from a true functional standpoint. You know, people seem to do about the same whether we tenodes or tenotomize. Um, the tenodesis does have a theoretical decreased risk of cramping and possibly improved uh, tension and cosmesis. Um, and so I, I sort of leave it up to the patient. Although if a patient is um, particularly um, amorphous in their upper extremity yeah. uh, situation, yeah. if you will. You know, I, I don't think it really matters for that patient, but I think some of the more physically fit bodybuilder type patients really want you to reattach it, and that's okay. I, I think it's important that the patient knows that, that there is risk with, with the tenodesis. You know, you're in, in this example, you know, the hole has been drilled through the bone. Um, there's a button in there and a screw holding things in place. In other examples, there may be smaller anchors that hold things in place. Um, and I think, I think it's really up to the patient to understand that there are risks for the tenodesis, but there, you know, there are cosmetic risks, I guess, with tenotomy. And, and I, from my standpoint, I truly let the patient decide what, what they think is best for them. Because for me, it's little difference as far as the outcome. Okay. So for the biceps, dealer's choice. And for the labrum, I think you were saying that for these, you typically will at least debride and get back yeah. and fix the labrum. Yeah. So I think that the biggest thing with the labrum is to try to stabilize it. You know, there is some discussion about, do we need the superior labrum and a superior capsule reconstruction? And, and my general consensus on that is I like to leave it um, because I do think it can help a little bit with superior translation. There are some people who take it. Um, I don't have any serious argument against that, that that's, that's, you know, bad or anything. But if you look at the labrum on the left, um, on your slide here, that's a nice labrum that looks like it will still function reasonably. Now the labrum on the right, eh, maybe not so much. That's one that you probably debride a little bit and try to stabilize. And if you need to remove it because it's, it's really ratty, then that's okay. Um, I'm not, so, you know, in this situation where we're, we're going to end up attaching anchors to the top of the glenoid. So we're not so worried about the labrum, but I, I have a tendency to leave it if, if it's reasonable to leave. Okay. And, and another question I had is just kind of reading up on it. It looked like, you know, the original or, you know, it, beforehand when people used to do this procedure, they used to use an, a, a fascia lot of autograph, but a lot of stuff that I'm seeing now is talking about 
um, allograft, you know, a synthetic allograft that you use uh, during this procedure. Yeah. Is there, is there a, you know, a difference between them? You know, is one better than the other? Is there, you know, going to morbidity or what, what's the, I guess, um, the pluses and, and minuses for both? Sure. Yeah, I, I think originally, you know, when Mahata developed this technique, um, allograft tissue really wasn't available to him in, in Japan. So he was using fasciolata autograft, which he could then kind of fold over and make into a relatively thick graft. Um, and so I think, you know, if you look at his studies, his patients have good outcomes. He has very, very nice results with this procedure. So I think the autograft is, is an excellent option. I think the challenge is something you mentioned is, you know, donor site morbidity and it's, it's harder to make a reproducible graft, I think, if you're using, you know, fasciolata. I think sometimes that can be really nice stout tissue in some patients and other patients, especially as you get, you know, into your later 60s maybe, it, it may not be as quite stout of tissue and it may not work quite as well. So in the U.S., um, the tendency has been to use synthetic allograft, well, it's allograft, it's been to use uh, a dermal allograft, <clears throat> um, which is typically three millimeters in thickness. Okay. I think the, the early failures with allograft or the early um, sort of concerns about allograft was when we were using a, a, a smaller thickness, a one millimeter graft, and that had a, a reasonably high failure rate in the studies that we have. So transitioning to the three millimeter thicker graft seems to more readily approximate probably what Mahato is doing, um, and I think works better. I, I don't think that the study show works better. Okay. So let's say yeah. we have the, you know, our guy here, this, this is throwing the fact that maybe now he's a bodybuilder. So let's say he's a bodybuilder. We decided to sure. do some biceps, yep. uh, debris the labrum, and we're going to go with an allograft. What, now when, when it goes to the technical part aspect of preparing the glenoid, uh, what, like, I guess, what do you do with that? Do you, how many pins do you use? Or is there a position that you need to put the pins in? Are there screws? Like what, yeah. how do you, what's the technique behind the glenoid? Yeah. So, so the idea here is, we want to reestablish that superior capsule now. So we've determined at this point that the rotator cuff is not repairable. We've done our releases. We've done everything else, just like you talked about. And we've gotten to a point where we say, okay, we can't fix this rotator cuff. And the patient is a healthy patient and meets criteria. His subscapularis looks good. Um, and everything else looks good, not a bunch of arthritis. And so here's a patient who would be a good candidate for a superior capsule reconstruction. So what we want to do now is reestablish that superior capsule, which is attach basically tissue from the superior aspect of the glenoid and then attach it to the superior and lateral aspect of, of the greater tuberosity. So now we're trying to make a bridge essentially. Um, so the first thing we need to do is, is attach that tissue to the glenoid. And so we need to cover sort of the footprint over the top part of the glenoid. And we do that typically by aiming anchors in different positions over the top. And those anchors are typically placed, if you think of a clock face with midnight being the top of the glenoid, um, we typically want to place those anchors at 10, 12, and 2. And we've actually, um, we've done a study on this in the lab when I was in Vail to look at, you know, where should we put these and where is it safe? Um, because one of the things we worry about is, is damage to the nerve structures around there, right? So, so we have to be very careful as to where we're putting things and make sure that we're not putting, you know, things at risk by placing these, these different anchors. Um, so when we're looking at that, that 10, 12, and 2 position uh, can be placed percutaneously and, and it stays away from, from the nervous structures nearby and we're able to place these safely so that they don't converge. But I think one of the tips that we, that we figured out with this cadaveric study was that that 12 o'clock anchor, if we move it slightly medial so that it's just sort of medial to, to where we put the other anchors, um, that seems to also give us um, enough space so that we're not converging on the other anchors and we're, not, we're still at least 10 to 15 millimeters away from the suprascapular nerve, which is the thing we worry about. Okay. And is there, um, is there a discussion as far as uh, the type of anchors you use and like knotless anchors or, I mean, I'm sorry, like knotless screws, uh, you know, versus push. I know there's yep. different types of um, fixation. Yeah. So ju just like pretty much anything in sports medicine, you know, if you give, if you give the sports medicine people enough time, we'll figure out a way to make it knotless and we'll figure out a way to, to make it easier. Right. So, yeah. um, the, the we did we studied this as well in the, in the lab and we looked at the comparison of different fixation techniques for how we fix the 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 
patch, if you will, or the, the allograft medially on the glenoid. And so it first started off with using push-in anchors, um, and then it sort of went to push-in anchors with a combination of some tie anchors. And what we figured out now is that if we use a knotless self-tensioning anchor, and we use three of them placed at that 10, 12, and 2 position, that seems to be the biomechanically most advantageous um, situation. Now, there are screw-in anchors that are roughly the same size, and that may allow us to get even some increased pull-out strength. Um, that's still kind of up in the air as to whether or not we should use those in all positions or whether we should just use it at the at the 12 o'clock position. Um, but at this point, I'm still using a, a punch-in, knotless, self-tensioning um, anchor to attach the capsule immediately. Okay. Let's say, you know, we've got this patient, we attached our capsule at our 10, uh, uh, 12, 2 o'clock positions with our knotless push um, anchors, and we've gotten our glenoid fixation. When we go to look at the humerus, is there anything that we should be, you know, pay attention to there? What's kind of the technique behind our humerus uh, fixations? Yeah. So um, I look at the humerus fixation as just a rotator cuff repair at this point. So mm -hmm. once you've got, once you've got the medial side fixed, um, I have a tendency to fix the lateral side exactly the same way that I would fix a standard rotator cuff, uh, tear. And so in, in these situations, I typically use a double row, knotless, self-reinforced transosseous equivalent technique. Um, in this case, you know, it's typically called the speed bridge, not to, not to plug a specific company, but that's, yeah. that's, uh, typically the, the scenario that I use. Although I know there are people who, who still like to tie the medial row, and then tr transition it to a double row. But I do think there's enough data now to suggest that double row um, is probably the, the right construct for this situation and probably for many rotator cuff tears as long as there's not significant tension. But I think utilizing that, that double row transosseous equivalent technique um, is the right way to go. And it typically ends up being two anchors medial just off of the articular cartilage and then okay. two anchors lateral um, sort of just off the edge of the, of the greater tuberosity. Okay. And is there any specific position that the arm is in when you're fixing these? Do you have any, any degrees of abduction or you keep them straight? Yeah, this, this, is, this is a little dogmatic as well because I don't think we have a ton of data on the optimal positioning, but most people fix this in 30 to 40 degrees of abduction um, with the arm. Um, the general consensus has been it's better to over tension than under tension. So, you know, ideally you're kind of fixing it probably more, uh, more, you know, with the arm and slightly more abduction so that when you drop your arm, there's a little more tension to it to kind of give this reverse trampoline effect. So you can imagine once you get that that graft situated over the glenoid and over, over the humerus attached to the greater tuberosity, it sort of acts to compress the head down so that it no longer escapes up and impacts the, the undersurface of the acromion. So a little more tension doesn't seem to be bad as long as we are careful with our rehab and not pushing people because that's one of the risks. If you over-tension it, is it going to put stress on it and cause it to fail? So we're kind of trying to balance that, that idea. And so I think 30 to 40 degrees seems to be the consensus here of abduction. Okay. Yeah, I think I was watching just in preparation. I was, you know, I was looking at some YouTube videos. I think it was a video of Dr. Burkhart uh, mm -hmm. talking talking about it. And I, I think he was saying some, something like right around thirty degrees as well. He was going over a lot of a lot of the, some of the, some of the things that we were talking about. But um, yeah, that seems that's what I've what I've seen is in my very 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 limited <laughs> knowledge. <laughs> of CR, yeah, <laughs> And you know, it's interesting because I, I have a tendency to trust Dr. Burkhart because he's got so many years of experience. He's one, he's one of the true godfathers of sort of uh, shoulder arthroscopy. And, um, you know, he and his group, he's got a, a large group of fellows that he's trained and they've sort of started to collect all their data together. And, you know, they're some of the folks who really helped us understand, you know, best patient selection, best techniques, what to do. And so, you know, I think he, uh, I think, yeah, I, I agree with him that, you know, 30 to 40 is probably the right way to go. Yeah. And uh, for those that are, that are watching or that are listening to this, if you uh, go to the YouTube, we actually have a couple um, videos that are accompanying um, this talk, but for those that are watching on YouTube, great. Dr. Mitchell, I just had a couple of videos um, from your, that you're so gracious to show us your PowerPoint before this. Um, 
could you do you mind explaining these if I click play on on one of these kind of what yeah. we're looking at? So, yeah, I think I think this actually might be uh, a video that that Dr. Chris Adams had sent me before I gave uh, this talk in Vail. So I think these might actually be his videos and not necessarily oh, wow. mine. It doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> well, Adams, um, we appreciate but, it. <laughs> yeah, either way. Um, these these are videos basically demonstrating so in in the video that you're going to play now it's a massive irreparable rotator cuff tear in a cadaveric model and, and this is basically demonstrating that when you push on the humerus that ball will shift significantly superior such that it abuts the undersurface of the acromion it's basically creating a, an unstable shoulder and so you can see that this shoulder is not a well-functioning shoulder. You can see that it would not tolerate, you know, normal use well. Whereas on, on the right side, it shows a similar idea of trying to push the shoulder up um, with the uh, superior capsular reconstruction in place. And you can see that that ball is not moving and it's staying reasonably well contained, you know, within the glenohumeral joint. So I think those are the, uh, those are the, the ideas for this surgery is to take a very poorly functioning shoulder and convert it to a more reasonably functioning shoulder. Yeah. And I think we're actually had some technical difficulties and are not able to get this to play, but that was still an excellent um, description of both uh, nonetheless. And I think that, you know, I think that did just a very, I mean, that was a good job of explaining both of them. Now, you know, say we've done this, we've done the surgery. Uh, we are satisfied with the amount of tension that we have. Um, we're satisfied with the way that the, you know, the humeral head sits in the glenoid. Uh, do you have any specific post-op rehab protocol for your patients? Yeah, and I, I think this, these are the parts where these are kind of fair game test questions. I think the, the, the idea of the superior capsular reconstruction, the things you have to really know from a testing standpoint are, you know, what is the superior capsule? What is its function? When would a patient be indicated for this? And then postoperatively, how do we treat these patients? And, and I think we really have to go slow. Um, this is really not your standard rotator cuff. And the more and more data we get, the more data, the more we understand that we have to really slow these patients down. And this is sort of directed by some animal studies that kind of show that over time, at time zero, the graft is basically a, a dermal sponge. And then by three months, we get to a point where the graft is completely disorganized. You know, if you think about things you learned about ACL healing, for example, you don't let a patient go back to play at three months just because they feel good. And you, you'll see in clinic a lot of patients after an ACL that feel good. Well, you'll see the similar thing with superior capsule reconstructions. These patients do surprisingly well, and they do surprisingly well, surprisingly quickly. So you really have to hold them back a little bit and kind of say, hey, listen, we, we really need to hold you back. We don't really want to do, you know, a, a lot of increased activity, lifting, pushing, pulling, and we really have to hold them back almost until six months before they can do a lot of stuff to get that graft healed. Um, so we go slow. It's six, six to eight weeks in a sling, starting with just passive range of motion, then transitioning to more active range of motion. And really, I hold off on actual strengthening until at least three months after surgery. And some people are even um, more aggressive than that. Um, or I say, should say more conservative than that. Um, but these are people we have to let I'll go slow with because if we don't go slow, the chances of failure are, are increased. It seems. Okay. And, um, and I know you kind of just, just touched on it a little bit. You, you said the graph kind of, um, if you, if you look at it over a certain period of time, you don't want the graph to fail. And that's why you have, you know, your rehabilitation protocol. Uh, what do you do when the graph does fail? Do you go back and do a revision, you know, reconstruction, do you reconstruct it again? Do you, do you transition to a reverse? Is there anything, um, that you have at that point, just one. Yeah, first, first I cry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> cry <some tears. laughs> yeah, and then, and then after I'm done crying and swearing and doing all kinds of you know, tantrums, um, you know, then then that's a great question. We have to think about what to do, and I think we have to figure out, you know, why did it fail? So did it fail because there was a trauma? Uh, in which case, we might have a chance to redo this, and it was just a freak thing. Did it fail because? Um, you know, the patient was non-compliant, in which case probably not a great idea to do, to do a secondary surgery. Um, did it fail because of some other thing that we missed? Did the patient have a subscapularis tear that we missed? Did the patient have significant infraspinatus or teres minor injury that we missed? Was there more arthritis than we thought there were that, than there was? And, and we find out that the patient's shoulder is just starting to wear away. So I think we have to figure out first, you know, why did it fail? 
And when we look at these failures, they seem to fail more, more significantly, more significantly on the glenoid side. Um, okay. And if they, if they t- t- tear on the glenoid side or if they fail on the glenoid side, that may be a tougher problem to deal with because you've already created holes in the glenoid. Then you're talking about potentially having to take anchors out, maybe even bone grafting the glenoid. And at that point, you know, we may be looking at, you know, reverse options or even maybe some tendon transfer options or isolated debridement and sort of live with it options. And so I think it, it is a little bit patient selective on that side of it. You know, what can the patient tolerate? What are you willing to, to proceed with them? Um, but I, I think that failures in these situations are tough. And most of the time, the answer is a reverse arthroplasty, at least, at least from the ones that I have seen and dealt with. Okay. Well, Dr. Mitchell, I think this was, um, this is really good. I think we um, definitely, it was really informative, spoke a lot about, you know, what patients that um, would be good candidates for a superior capsular reconstruction, some technical pearls, even the things to look for on history and physical exam findings. Uh, is there anything else that you, you know, before we wrap up here that you think that people listening should take home with? No, I think this is one of those things that um, it, it pays probably to take five to 10 minutes just to read a little bit about it, to learn about it. I think this is one of those things that you may not see a lot um, in residency. You know, if you end up doing a sports medicine fellowship, you'll probably see it. But, you know, if you end up going into a different situation um, where you're not doing sports medicine, this is not something you're going to see a lot, but it's probably something to just be generally aware of. Um, I think it is probably starting to be fair game for tests and OITEs and all that stuff. So I think it's worth spending, you know, five to 10 minutes to, to learn a little bit more about it. Um, but I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about it and, and, you know, hopefully help introduce it to some folks and maybe give a little bit more detail for others. Yeah. And no, we appreciate you coming on the podcast and we always like to, um, at the end of our talks, give our, um, our our listeners, you know, any way to reach out to you if they want to, whether it's maybe social media or email or, you know, um, you know, if they have any questions or if, you, you know, if, if you want them to. Yeah, no, I'm, ha- I'm happy to talk with anybody. I, I just this year have kind of discovered um, social media. You know, I've, I've had yeah. accounts, but I really haven't used them. Mm-hmm. Um, so on Twitter, I'm Justin J. Mitchell. Um, on Instagram, I'm Dr. Justin Mitchell. Um, and then my email is just Justin J. Mitchell at Gmail. So if you want to, if you want to get in touch with me that way, I'm happy to talk to anybody or answer questions, whether it's about this or just things in general. Um, I end up talking to a lot of folks just kind of about sports medicine fellowship matches or residency matches and those kind of things. And I I like doing that. I, I work at sort of a pseudo academic institution where I have, you know, interns and uh, transitional year folks, but I don't spend a ton of time with ortho residents. So I I certainly don't mind helping because it kind of gets me that fixed too. Oh, perfect. Well, Dr. Mitchell, thank you so much for coming on. And for those listening, thank you all for listening. Again, we hope you subscribe, rate, please leave a review, tell us how much you love us or hate us, one of the two. And um, until next time.